Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, as you turn, I'll pray. Father, thank you for our time to gather this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, it is by your word that you speak. And thank you for the full revelation that you have given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the fullness of deity among us. We praise you for, for the way in which you have chosen to speak. Uh, we ask that you speak to us now by your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us a sense of discernment and understanding of what you're saying and what you're asking us each to do in response to your word today. Give us ears that we might hear, help us to avoid distraction, and I pray that you would speak to us and give us wisdom and insight into how we can live a life that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, so let's follow along as we read it together, says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. All right, that's the main point, that's the main verb, uh, that's the main point of these six verses. Consider Jesus. We'll circle back around to that in a few minutes. But the author of Hebrews is telling the audience, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Just as a reminder, the author of this book of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish community. The word church is never used once in the 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. It may or may not be a church. It is a community of ethnic Jews. They are living somewhere in the Roman Empire. And the author, based on our very first sermon introduction several weeks ago from Hebrews 10, was writing to a group of people who had experienced beatings. They had experienced persecution. Romans had and other uh, Jews had come into their community and had asked if there were any believers in the room and had gathered them, beaten them, uh, taken their property. They had in many ways abused them. And through their abuse, there were many of these people in this Hebrew community that had determined that uh, maybe Christianity, maybe walking with Jesus, maybe taking a stand for Jesus is costing too much. There's a toll that it's taking on my emotion, on my life, on my social life, on my uh, relationships in the community, on my business. In every way, following Jesus has cost me too much. And so the temptation for them was to go backward into Judaism. Now, all of us experience, all of us in Christ, all of those who are born again believers in the room, your faith has at one point cost you something. You had to stand up for Jesus. You had to acknowledge your faith in Christ and it cost you something. Maybe it cost you a job, as Charles uh, talked about several weeks ago when he preached. His testimony for Jesus got him fired a few weeks later. 
Now, maybe for you it cost you relationships. Maybe you came to a point where, where you could have stood for Jesus and you backed down and you softened your faith and said, I don't know if I believe, I'm still kind of exploring I'm on this journey. Like maybe you kind of softened your faith in some way so that you wouldn't have to pay something. All of us at some point are tempted. One of the greatest temptations for uh, believers in the early church was what do we do with all those who denied Jesus during the persecution and then wanted back in the church? Can you imagine uh, 120 AD, you're in a a small house church and in walks so-and-so that 25 years ago when, when they were dragging your brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and children off and uh, crucifying them or killing them or sending them into the arena because they refused to disown Jesus. But now, all of a sudden, these other believers are coming back and, and they're saying, we still believe. That was the greatest trial for the early church in the second century A.D. was, what do we do with these believers who are trying to come back in after they denied Jesus? Following Jesus will cost you something. And if you're not willing to pay that price, or if you're willing to compromise your faith, or to, to walk away from it, or to doubt, or to struggle in all those ways, it may reveal more about you. In verse 6 he says, if we persist in faith, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Listen, the author of Hebrews, this guy, he's unrelenting when it comes to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. All throughout this book, we're going to talk about it. It's going to come up several times that believers who don't persevere were never believers in the first place. That is, if you finish your life, cross the tape of, you know, the finish line of your life, and if if you have rejected Jesus, though at one time you walked an aisle, or though at one time you were baptized, or though at one time you were a member of a church, or though at one time you took the Lord's Supper, or taught a Sunday school class, or did something, if at any point in your life you turn your back on Jesus, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says you were never saved to begin with. Though you partook of the community, though you experience the general blessings that come under a church like this, that walks with God, that teaches the Word, that, that um, gives financially, that serves, that, that does mission work around the world. And even if you've participated and been under the general blessing of a church like this, being in a church doesn't make you a Christ follower in the same way that being in a garage doesn't make you a car. In that way, if you don't persevere in personal faith, the faith of your parents won't save you, the faith of your grandparents, the faith of your ancestors, their faith does not count for you. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that if you are a genuine believer, you will persist in faith through trials. And the author of the Hebrews, this book of Hebrews, he will not let up on this. We're going to get into some sticky stuff uh, through the rest of this book. There are times when you're going to doubt your own salvation, the way this guy writes. I just want you to know it's coming. It's hard. It's, it's, it's difficult. But the truth of the perseverance of the saints is that if they walked away from us, they were never really one of us in the first place, John wrote. And that's a hard truth for many of us who have seen friends, and loved ones, and family members, and children walk away from the faith altogether. They are living for something other than Jesus. Willfully, stubbornly, proudly, openly. And for us, we understand that that could be us at any moment. 
Yet the Lord holds us. Yet the Lord holds us. Some people have taken the perseverance of the saints and described it as the preservation of the saints. That is, that God holds His own and will see you through as long as your faith remains in Jesus Christ. So that's verse 6, and we're going to get into that later, but that's just a preview. He starts this section saying, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a holy calling, consider Jesus, that's the main verb. Therefore, holy brothers, he's saying, therefore, based on what? The sermon last week was, therefore, in all the great ways, in the greatest rescue mission that Jesus has accomplished for us, he has done incredible things for us. When he saved us, last week he said he sanctified us, he adopts us into his family, he identifies with us, he helps us through all of the times of temptation, and he humbled and suffered on our behalf as a trailblazer. Jesus went before us. I was invited to some friends' houses. Uh, house. They only have one house. Uh, they may have more than one. I don't know. But I was invited to their one house that I know of. I'm sorry. <laughs> they have these four-wheelers. Uh, they have a big property. Uh, they had a mini bike. I got on the 50cc mini bike, and uh, it's not picture, pretty picture. So I got on the bigger four-wheeler. And, and as it was getting darker, I was following the owner, right? And he was ripping through these trails, through the woods, and there's branches and mud everywhere. And my only hope was to follow, as it got darker, the path that he blazed before me. <laughs> or, you know, I might get stuck or roll this thing over or something. But, but in the same way, Jesus blazed a path through suffering and through humility. And as we follow him, that's the path that we're on. Life has many joys, there are many victories, there are many uh, incredible blessings of being in Christ, but it's not without its trials and difficulties and sufferings. Yet Jesus, if we hold fast to Him, if we remain in Him, if we consider Him, we're going to talk about what that means in a minute, then we will persevere till the end and receive all the benefits and blessings that He has purchased for us. It's funny, He calls them holy brothers. He calls them holy brothers, it's included uh, generally to all of us who are in Christ, holy brothers and sisters and children and men and women. Uh, many of us have probably never been accused of being holy, right? If raise your hand if people say, you're just too holy. When I'm around you, I'm just too holy, right? Probably not. Many of us have been accused of that and maybe in a negative way. Somebody might say to you, you just have kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. Anybody ever had somebody say that to you, that you're accused you of being self-righteous or having a holier-than-thou attitude? Well, the term is hagios, and it just really means that we're set apart. We're consecrated. I'm uh, one of six. There were five children in my household, and this, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when mom brought groceries into the house, um, there was a mad dash to take the best of the groceries and to hide them, <laughs> to set them apart. The, uh, the little Debbie uh, oatmeal cream pies, and when there's three boys in the house, and and food is brought in. Nobody's arguing or fighting over like bananas and apples and, and things like that. But everybody is, is anxiously trying to hide all the best food, to set it apart. We've been called out of the world and set apart, consecrated, made holy, set apart for a purpose. That's what this word holy means. And so when, when you were redeemed, when God bought you, when you put your faith in Jesus, God called you out of something and set you apart for something else. He consecrated you. He gave you a purpose, a will, a goal, a job, a desire in the kingdom to fulfill a purpose. You are set apart. And it includes living your life for Christ, putting off the flesh 
putting off the sin nature, avoiding temptation, and living for someone. That's what it means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be holy. This is a trigger word for the audience. They are Hebrews. They are steeped in Mosaic law, in the Levitical law. When you said holy to a group of Jews like this, they knew that holiness came at a price. They understood that the the entire sacrificial system was built on taking the blood and the body of an innocent animal and sacrificing it so that its pain and death and suffering would be attributed to you symbolically for your righteousness. And so when John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it triggered for every faithful Jew what a Lamb of God would look like, that this person was going to be the final substitute for the sin and punishment of humanity. The Israelite knew that holiness came at a high value and it was extremely costly. Yet our holiness in Christ under the new covenant, it's, it's awarded to you. It's awarded to you. You're gifted righteousness. You don't have to earn that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it is by what? It's by grace you've been saved, not by works. It's not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. If we could earn our own salvation, we would be so proud of ourselves, wouldn't we? We would just, I'm such a moral, good, righteous person that God has to receive me. And yet, Ephesians 2 is very clear that it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. You were gifted holiness, not because of anything you did, but because of what he did. Not because of anything you did, but because of what he did. If you could earn your salvation, why would God ever send his son Jesus to die on a cross? No one would do that. No one would sacrifice their only son if there was another way. Jesus begged for another way on the night before the crucifixion, and it was not given to him. There was no other way. For salvation to happen. It was costly. It cost him everything. But we are called holy brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called righteous. Not because of our own righteousness. Romans 3. But because the righteousness of Christ covers us. Like an umbrella shelters us from the rain. That when God looks at you. He doesn't pour wrath on you. But you are covered by the righteousness of Christ. So that when God sees you. Believer if you're in Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Given to you credited to your account Genesis 15 6 when Abram believed God it was credited 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 sorry it was credited to his account because he believed God righteousness comes by faith not by works and so we can receive this you are a saint you may not feel like a saint we may not call each other saints but in God's eyes you're a saint a holy brother and sister if you are By faith in Christ. He says you've been given a heavenly calling. It reminds us that this world is not our home. That we're just passing through. We're sojourners. Um, If you've ever been on an RV trip. uh, And raise your hand if you've been on an RV trip. Every stop you've stopped at was not your home. And you were made probably painfully aware of that. Uh, This was you were passing through. You're a temporary resident. um, and, And this life. Don't be too settled here. Don't be too comfortable here. Don't try to make heaven on earth. Jesus promised his disciples, uh, where I go, I'm going to build a place for you. I'm building a room for you. 
In my father's house are many mansions or many places. And if I go away, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And this heavenly calling, this drawing reminds us this world is not our own. You should not be at home in this world and in this culture. Jesus is compared to Moses. And we understand why, because the author is trying to convince this Hebrew community not to go backward. Not to go backward. If you want to understand Hebrews, understand that it's written to an ethnic Jewish community. And so they held up Moses as everything. In the first few chapters, chapters 1 and 2, the author said that Jesus is better than the angels who mediated the Old Covenant. Galatians 3.19. He was better than them, so don't worship the means by which salvation came, the mediators. Now he's saying, you have this hero of the faith, Moses. Jesus is better than that Moses. Why was Moses the hero of their faith? Let's take out the baseball card of Moses and just kind of look at his stats, right? Moses was a big deal. He was a very big deal. We read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And collectively, that book of five books is called what? Yes, the Pentateuch. I knew it was on the tip of your tongue. Moses is the author of that, right? He wrote those, everything we know about creation, the call of Abraham, Noah, everything we know about all the, is attributed to Moses. The foundations of our faith, Moses compiled and wrote. This is what we think he was doing on the mountain for all those days, is that he was God's vessel for revelation. God chose to use Moses in a way that gives us insight into all things and how they were created and made and and our identity and the fall of man and the creation and all the things that we understand about our faith can be attributed through the Holy Spirit, through Moses. Moses was the deliverer. You remember him from Exodus. He's introduced in Exodus as the little baby. You probably remember this from flannel grams in Sunday school, right? He, He was a little... The little baby Moses was placed in a little basket in the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter found him and they adopted him into the family. And and after a period of time, Moses went out to visit his brothers when he was 40 and he tried to rescue one of his Jewish brothers by uh, killing an Egyptian, hit his body in sand, fled away, uh, spent 40 years as a shepherd. Uh, And then out of nowhere, the Lord calls him to go back and deliver his people. And he delivers them through the plagues, through the ten plagues in the book of Exodus. Through Moses came the temple, came the entire sacrificial system, the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. Moses was personally an incredible guy. Numbers 12.3 shows that he was the most humble man on all the earth. Uh, Moses was the most obedient person. Did you know that over 40 times in Numbers and Deuteronomy it says that Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him? Moses is known more for his one act of disobedience, right? Than for all those dozens and dozens of times in which he was fully obedient to God. Moses is like a rock star. But Moses is called a servant here, and Jesus is the son. Now, who's great in that situation? It's the son, not the servant. Maybe these people in this Hebrew community held Moses as the hero of their faith, as the end-all, be-all. And yet Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that that there's going to come a prophet after me who's greater than I am. Moses bowed to Jesus. Think about the the Christophanies, 
Right? That's the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament. All the times when the angel of the Lord, capital A, capital L, when the angel of the Lord, angel is a word that just means messenger, when the messenger of the Lord came down and received worship, right? He received worship and people bowed down to him. And he, the angel of the Lord is the one who is present in the burning bush. Moses bowed down to Jesus in this Christophany. Jesus is greater than Moses. In the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Moses and Elijah who are offering support and encouragement to Jesus before his suffering. Jesus is greater than Moses. The author of Hebrews describes the house that is being built. This is a metaphor uh, that is used often in the New Testament and as, as God is building a spiritual house. He's building a spiritual um, house made of people that you are a part of that. Peter describes that we are being built up into this house of God. But if you're in Christ, you're a part of this house that God is building. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16 that upon this rock, I will build my church. And so because of that, Jesus is, we are being built up into something that is not yet completed. But let's circle back around in our, in our, as I sort of head toward the runway. I may circle it a couple times. We're going to head to the runway. Um, in, in this main verb in this passage, we're called to consider Jesus. Consider is, is kind of a weak word when you think about all the ways that it's used in the Bible. It's used in James 1.23. You remember that passage that says, a man who looks intently at his own face in the mirror and then walks away. Same word. Uh, same word used there is to look intently, to look closely. It carries the idea of biblical meditation. You think about Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation tells you to empty your mind and sort of, sort of stop all thoughts at all. Biblical meditation is to fill your mind with biblical thoughts, to fill your mind, to think deeply, to dwell in the Word of God richly. This is the same idea, to look intently at Jesus. It is to look closely. It is to perceive. To fix your eyes is what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us at the end. To fix our gaze on Jesus. Have you ever seriously looked to Jesus? Have you ever seriously considered Him? Have you ever looked intently for Him? Listen, I'm not asking you if you've considered religion. Maybe when you were 17 or 18 or 20 in, in some college class, you kind of charted out all the world's major religions. And you decided to choose Christianity. Or maybe it was chosen for you through your heritage. Maybe your family was, uh, this is part of their routine. And so you're just Christian by culture. Christian by religion. Christian by tradition. I'm not asking you if you have looked intently into religion. I'm not asking if you've inherited a religion. I'm not even asking if you have looked intently into a denomination. Denomination is just a way in which we divide Christian churches. If there's a bucket, and it's called the Christian church, within that bucket there are a lot of divisions, and they're all called denominations. I'm not asking if you've examined your denominational affiliation. I'm not even really asking you to consider a culture. I'm not asking you to consider a culture. What do I mean by that? I mean the culture is just an expression, a byproduct of a group of believers that may or may not include faith. Included in the culture are things like uh, the way we dress, the way we organize pews, 
the way I stand on a stage, the way we gather for an hour and 15 minutes and we don't go long, you know, the, uh, that's kind of a cultural thing if we sing hymns. But, but if you strip all that away, would you still be a Jesus follower? So I'm not asking you to consider a religion. I'm not asking you to consider a culture. I'm not asking you to consider a denomination. I don't even care if you consider this church. You can go anywhere you want. You can go to any believing Christ exalting Bible preaching church and my heart will be full for you. I want you to be where God wants you to be. So I'm not pitching something that you should join this church. I'm just asking the question, if you were removed from this country, from this culture, from everything familiar about this routine, would you be at home in your relationship with Jesus alone? I've worshipped Jesus on five continents. In fields, in huts, in mud, on mountains, in cathedrals. In all those places, you know what I've noticed? Jesus is Jesus. And my relationship with Him flourished regardless of where I was. I was in Israel. And for ten days, I was walking where Jesus walked. And you know what struck me on like the eighth day? What struck me on the eighth day is that I'm learning all these things about where I'm walking in places where Jesus walked. I'm picking up mustard seeds where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. I'm standing where he drove the the demon out of the legion and they went into the pig. I'm standing on that precipice. I'm looking at all these things. And you know what struck me most? I've known Jesus for 20 years without having experienced stepping one foot on this place. I don't have to go to Israel to know Jesus. I can know Jesus anywhere. I'm asking you to pursue Jesus. That if you were removed from everything that you thought was comfortable and familiar about your faith, would you still have a thriving, warm relationship with Jesus? Have you ever set out on a quest to know Jesus intimately? Have you looked intently? That's what the author of Hebrews is telling them to do. Consider Jesus. Listen, you're considering going back. You're considering look deeper into Jesus and what it means to follow him. And he's telling them that you won't be disappointed Looking deeply into Jesus, pursuing Him, seeking Him. In First Chronicles 28, it says, David is telling Solomon, you will seek God and find Him when you seek Him with all your heart. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Isaiah 55.6 says, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. There is a window in which God may be found and you're ripe to seek Him. But it's not open forever. Matthew 7, 7 through 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. I sat down for lunch yesterday with a guy at uh, the Vietnamese cafe. And we shared over some spicy noodles for about an hour and a half and As I heard his story, uh, towards the end of it, I I was able to share my story. And he had some constructive, skeptical sort of ideas and concerns about church and about organized religion. And and you've probably heard things like that before. And towards the end of it, I was just able to say, I don't know anything about all of those things. What I do know is that I was lost, but now I'm found. That I was an atheist. That I was immoral. That I was steeped in my own sin and immorality, that I had a pregnant girlfriend with an abortion clinic phone number in my pocket, that I was suicidal, a drunk, and a drug addict, 
And that at the height of my despair, I just said, if there's a God out there somewhere, you've got to help me because I can't do this anymore. And the next day, a stranger knocked on my door and said, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? What do I know about organized religion? Not very much. What do I know about manipulative techniques to get you to give your life to Christ? Not much. But what I do know is that I was lost, but now I'm found. What I do know is that I was broken and he put me back together. Does that make me perfect? Does that make me? No, it just makes me redeemed by the blood of Christ. So my encouragement to you today is, have you considered Jesus? Not religion, not culture, not this church, not membership, not morality, not a code of moral to-dos. But have you pursued Jesus? And if you haven't, you're settling for a counterfeit. This church will never be enough for you. It will never quench your thirst. I will never be enough. Your spouse will never be enough. Your children, your experiences, your mission trips. Nothing will ever be enough except Jesus. And that's the point of Hebrews. Is that no one else can satisfy us like Christ. It's my prayer this morning that you would consider Him intently. That you would seek Him while He may be found. Lord Jesus, we exalt You today. We thank You that many people in the room know what it's like to have been broken. Know what it's like to have failed. Know what it's like to have been completely devastated in sin. And they also know the redemption that came when they cried out to You, Jesus. Lord, so many other people have experienced a counterfeit, a religion, a tradition, a heritage, a culture. I pray that You would cause people to pursue You today. And I pray that in their pursuit of You, that they would find life. In Jesus' name, Amen.